You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Father, I pray that as the Holy Spirit dwells within us, that you fill us with a grand vision of your glory that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, that you open our, our minds and our hearts towards these things. That as we dwell on and mull over the truths evident in Isaiah chapter 40, that we see you for who you are. Not a small, distant God, but someone who is gloriously over all things, has created all things for his glory. Father, I pray that as we worship you this morning, that shapes not only our vision of you, but our vision of our entire reality. Father, we pray that the Spirit does a great work in us this morning, and the church prayed with one loud voice, amen. That was a, a small, quiet voice, but that's okay. I'll be, I'll be praying for uh, the Spirit to open your tongues as well as your mind, so that's okay. Um, and friends, the, the reason that I'm so excited about what we have in Isaiah 40 is because I think it holds within us, within it, within its, its pages, truths that we don't actually think about that often. There's something missing from the general day-to-day life experience of our Christian community that Isaiah chapter 40 holds. There's language that's Missing, and it's language and an idea that can actually shape our reality. I think what we're going to explore today will help explain not only why you see the world the way that you do, not only why you see yourself the way that you do, but explain why you are sad when you're sad, why you are angry when you're angry, and why you are joyful when you're joyful, and why you can have a completely different emotional experience to someone on the same geographical journey to you as you on the way to work in the morning. So you can be driving down the highway, experience a completely different set of emotions, and the answer to why that is is in Isaiah chapter 40. And what I'm going to do today is I'm going to present a thesis, and I'm going to explore that, and then we're going to spend most of our time in the 40th chapter of Isaiah. Are you ready? Here's my thesis today, that at the bottom of every thought that you have ever had, every decision you've ever made, every action you've ever taken is the worship of something. Everyone worships. And The reason we take the actions we take or the decisions that we make or feel the emotions that we feel is because of what we worship. And everyone worships. It's the thing we do when we jump up out of bed in the morning. We start chasing something to revel in, to worship, to see is magnificent. I was going to say magnify and magnificent. You can only say one of them. It's the reason why we go to great museums, why we go to big concerts, why we go to sporting events. It's because we're chasing something and everyone is worshipping. That looks differently. The, the teenager who's seeking after a pair of brand new Yeezys is doing the exact same thing that the businessman climbing the chain is. The young teenage girl who's 
getting ready for her debutante ball and focusing all her energy on the perfect gown is doing the same thing that the businesswoman planning her dream home is doing. And the, 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 the young man or woman in university who's putting all their energy and focus onto their exams and their tests is doing the same thing that someone seeking after a family is doing. They're seeking for worship. They're seeking for awe, for something to revel in. And this is not just something that happens on Sunday morning. I know that we have some churches which have such a narrow view of worship that worship is just the, uh, the slow songs that you sing. Praise are the fast songs, and so we have worship and they're the slow songs. So worship is something everyone does all of the time. It's, it's far beyond just Christianity. It's not something driven by the church, by theology, by our convictions. It's something that everyone does all of the time. And the question that we need to wrestle with this morning is a simple one. What do you worship? What is it that you worship? Because I think when we place a little bit of pressure on ourselves, we probably don't worship what we think we do. I think we'd like to believe, yes, I worship God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind and all my strength, but the reality is that come the work week, God's absent from our actions and our decisions and emotions and our reality. It's why we launched this series called Doxology. Doxology is a strange word, but it's an old Greek word that has had two different words smushed together to create something great. So doxa is a word that means glory, and logos is a word that means word, ironically. And so you smush them together, it just means a word of glory. And you find these all over the scriptures, these little pockets where people pause what they're doing to worship God because the understanding is that everything we do is worshiping God. And it's why when Paul is going through his theological treaty in the book of Romans that he stops for an interlude and he says these grand words in in Romans chapter 11. He says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He just stops what he's doing. Paul's in this mist of um, creating this grand theological vision for how the life, death, and resurrection shapes everything and changes everything for someone who understands and believes. And he stops because the primary thing he's doing is, yes, he's unpacking what that means, but the primary thing he's doing is worship. And so he stops his theological vision. He picks it up in chapter 12. He's talking about it before in chapter 11. And the thing he does is just, a, uh, I want to worship. That's what I'm doing. I'm worshiping. And so that's what we want to do today because God has hardwired us for worship. He's hardwired for us to seek after worship. It's the very reason we get out of bed and do all the things that we do is because we are created to worship. And God has given us a world full of awesome, incredible things for us to enjoy. But the thing about all of them is that they're designed to lead us back to the worship of the Creator rather than the creation. It's the reason why when we go on a hike, when we crest the peak and we see the sunrise or the sunset, well, hopefully not the sunset if you're hiking, that's when you're in trouble. 
right? It's why we crest the peak and we see the glorious view. We're like, that is incredible. It's why when we finally bite into the steak that we've been cooking, that we can see this is, this is incredible. It's why when we see newborn babies and we see their smile, we go, oh, God must exist. It's the reason why all of these incredible things exist is for us to be led back to God and go, how good is he? How grand is he? But the thing is that even if we fill ourselves at the banquet the very next morning, unless you've eaten a lot, at least the very next day, you're going to be eating again. No matter how much we fill ourselves, we can never be filled because food was not designed to fill us. Glorious views were not designed to keep us captivated forever, but to lead us back to God. We weren't designed to worship the creation, but the Creator. And it's not just Christians who have been saying this. It's actually atheists and agnostics. This is one of my favorite quotes from a guy, David Foster Wallace. He was a New York Times best-selling writer and author, and this is what he has to say about worship. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, There is no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some intangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual lure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on and so forth. I think that is a remarkable, convicting word from someone who's not a Christian about worship. Because it's true. And the reason why someone like David Foster Wallace can pinpoint our issues so accurately is that it's not about spirituality. It's not first about Christianity. It's just humanity. This is the very reason we were created. He's tapping into the very essence of what it means to be human. But the problem is that for most of us, this actually is the reality. We do start worshipping these things. And what happens is that we compartmentalize our worship. We have a a box, sure, that's got the spiritual stuff, that's got the God stuff in there. And then we've got a a box that we actually live in, that we work out of with all the real stuff, where the real worship takes place. And I want to preface this before we explore what's in these two boxes, is that the the thought that's probably coming to the, the front of your mind is... I wonder who would be in those boxes. It's probably my boss or my husband or my wife or my friend. Don't do that. Resist that temptation. Put yourself in your own sights and see where you're worshipping. 
See, the, the real life box, that's filled with the stuff of every day, the minutia that fills up our lives. It's filled with our families and our work and our jobs and our joys. It's filled with food and drinking and friends. And that's where we do most of our worship. That's where we do most of our chasing. That's where we do most of this stuff. The spiritual life is filled with Sunday. It's filled with small groups. It's filled with Bible study and and praise, maybe even worship if we get around to it, to the slow songs. And it's filled with prayer. But the thing about the spiritual life box for many of us is that it's so sectioned off from the real life, where the real stuff happens, where the, the chunky, meaty living happens, that it just has no effect. I don't know about you guys, but have you, have you come on a Sunday or been experiencing this a wonderful word from, from the Scriptures or just had a great time of worship and then it ends and it has absolutely no impact on the day-to-day rhythm of your life? Have you, have you experienced that? Yeah? Because I have. And I think the tonic for our two-draw living where the worship of God has no impact on what we actually do day to day, week in, week out, year in, year out, is held in Isaiah chapter 40. So I'm going to read out another big chunk. And the, the reason why we're reading out big chunks is not so that you would be bored. In fact, it's the opposite. It's because our minds are so filled with other stuff that we need it filled up with the words of who God is. And so I'd encourage you as I read to to close your your mind or your eyes or um, if you've got kids, maybe grab them before you close your eyes um, because they they run around and uh, because that's what I did. But I I want you to focus on these words. You read about 20 verses. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends to his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on a scale and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him his ways? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? The nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They were regarded to him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? For an idol, a metaphorical casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. And a person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. But do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers to him. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, 
and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of the, the, the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of this? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. It's humbling as a writer and a speaker to acknowledge that the greatest words that will be spoken or written are not your own, but the ones here. But that's the truth. This is what we need. Because the 40th chapter of Isaiah was written to comfort a besieged people. Things were going on in Israel that were not helpful for them. And I can attest personally that this chapter of Isaiah has been an enormous comfort for my soul in troubled times. I remember when I was 14, 15 years old and um, I was diagnosed with a chronic illness and they told me that I probably wouldn't finish high school. Now, God has done incredible things in the years after that, and I've, I've done all that stuff. But in that moment, it was an incredible amount of hopelessness and loss. And the greatest comfort for me wasn't the words of my doctors and the treatments and medications they were giving me. The greatest comfort wasn't the words of my friends and family as they tried to console me. The greatest comfort wasn't even the little voice in the back of my head that says, all these things are going to turn out and it's all going to be fine. The the greatest comfort was this book of Isaiah. Even youths grow grow tired and stumble and grow weary, but those who depend on the Lord will regain their strength. That's what I needed to hear. But the thing about the comfort of the 40th chapter of Isaiah is that it's not primarily about comfort. It's primarily about worship, which brings comfort. It's primarily about seeing God for who He is, which brings comfort to our souls. See, the thing about the 40th chapter of Isaiah is that it presents a worldview in which God is at the absolute utmost center of everything that occurs in his creation. There is nothing above God. There is nothing more deserving of worship, nothing more than him. And so it confronts all of our worldviews and all of our worship in which he is not the supreme creator of everything. Because we bring it to him, all of our wants and our desires and all these things that we worship. And in comparison to him, they're seen as nothing. What are the nations? Nothing. What are the princes? Nothing. What are all the gold and riches in the world in comparison to the creator of everything? Nothing. Not only does God exist, not only is God active, not only is God in control, but he is so glorious that the writer 
of Isaiah chapter 40 is struggling to even come up with words and pictures, mental word pictures in our heads that describe and illustrate what he's talking about. That's how big God is. And the reality is that it reveals that there are no two boxes. There is no real life where the real worship happens and there is no God box that's sectioned off. There is one box called life and God is at the centre of it whether we like it or not. So how do we diagnose and understand the things that we worship instead of God? I actually think it's rather simple. And I think as soon as you hear it, you'll start realising the things that you worship because I think what exposes what we worship is what we do when we suffer. See, my little nieces came over to my house the other day. They um, actually don't know all their ages. That's a terrible thing to admit. But there's three of them and they're really cute and I love playing with them. But the thing is that in their lunchbox yesterday there were two Maltesers each and they kept dropping them on the floor. And I swear, there are islanders in this church, I know, but if there was a scrum between you guys and them, they are smacking you guys every week because they, they are after it. They've got a, an obsession, a fixation on something and when they didn't get it, what do you think happened? Tantrum. The object of their fixation and worship had been removed from them and the response is to be angry, to be upset, to be sad, to, 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 to call out, Mom, I need you to fix this because Mom and Dad are sort of like God. And the same thing happens to us when we suffer. Nothing exposes what we worship like suffering. Nothing exposes the worship of affluence and money like suddenly having none of it. Nothing exposes the worship of education and knowledge like failing a test. Nothing exposes the worship of family like having family disappoint you. Nothing exposes the worship of control like suddenly being removed from control. It's when we suffer and when our thing that we worship is threatened, what's our response? It's to be sad, it's to be upset, it's to be threatened, it's to be angry, it's to be throw a tantrum. And I know for us here that there are pressure points. See, if you, if you take money from me, I probably won't matter that, I probably won't mind that much. I've never had much money growing up. But if you take control from me, I am, it is going to throw my soul into like a tiz. I'm going to be upset and sad. And I think sometimes that's why God has often given me illness and disease and all these things to remind me that I'm actually not in control very much and I need to place all my trust in Him. It's the reason why this year when Sarah was diagnosed with cancer that a lot of our friends actually had no words of encouragement to speak to us. I remember distinctly one of our friends um, who's not a Christian came to said and said, well, the universe is going to take care of you guys because uh, you're good people and the universe takes care of good people. And so what she'd worshipped is morality, being a good person. That's what's going to complete me, satisfy me. And then suddenly when Sarah, who is a lovely person who dedicates number of to- a, a huge amount of time to people who are less fortunate than her and youth and all this stuff, when she's diagnosed with a rare and aggressive cancer... She had nothing to say because it threatened what she worshipped, morality. It threatened what she worshipped. 
And often there'll be things that pop up when what we worship other than God is threatened. I want to introduce maybe six of them. Um, I didn't come up with these. These came from a book called Awe by Paul Tripp, which I'm going to recommend to all of you to look up. He's a great author. He's, he's been down this road of worship and his things, there are six things that ultimately come up in the lives of those who place something other than God at the center of our worship. And the first is anxiety. I'm not talking just about the psychological element of anxiety. I'm talking about the feeling in your chest when things are no longer in your control and it seems like everything's overwhelming. That's a feeling that most of us would experience, I'm imagining. But it happens often because the awe of God has not gripped our hearts and so our vision has become so narrow that the only thing in our field of vision is the the storm, the the pain, the hurt, the thing that's actually creating all this anxiety. It's because our vision isn't enlarged. What does Jesus say to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 when they're worrying about where are they going to sleep, where are we going to go, what are we going to do? He says, does not the Lord God even care for the sparrows in the field? How much will he take care of you? Anxiety dies when we understand that God is in control. And that's the second thing that often pops up. We might be anxious and we might have a lack of control. It's the second thing here. Why do we as people tend to be so controlling? Why do we need to have control over things? And why do we get so upset when we lose it? It's because ultimately we don't trust that this God of Isaiah chapter 40, who is above all things, created all things for his glory, does not have this in his hands. Because Christians are free to rest, they're free to submit to authority, they're free to loosen the shackles of control when we trust that the same God of Isaiah is the same God who controls all things for his good and our glory. Romans 8.28, God works all things for the good of those who love him, uh, being conformed to the image of his son. We can loosen those those, those shackles because we trust that I'm not in control, but God is. Another one is hopelessness. See, hopelessness is like sitting in a pitch black basement with the windows barred, not seeing the sun come in, feeling the dampening cold come upon our skin and then making the conclusion that the sun has stopped shining. And many of us live like that. Our field of vision is narrowed once again. And so the only thing we can see is the deafening blackness of our situation. But that's why I love these words. Youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Why why can we trust the promises of God even in the middle of the darkness, even in the middle of the black, even in the middle of the pit? It's because we trust that the sun has not stopped shining because the sun has conquered all things because the sun and God is over all things and created all things and therefore we can trust Him. It's when we don't have God at the center, that we lay down fertile soil for hopelessness to grow. Or what about the fourth diagnosis, debt? This is an interesting one because often we don't think about it, but what is the reason why we spend more than we actually possess? 
What is the reason why we chase item after item, thing after thing, experience after experience? And it's because we don't trust God to satisfy the longings of our heart. And so we go looking for that satisfaction and for that joy in all these things. It's just so obvious. I've got an auntie who I, I love, but um, after her divorce has just about every week gone to a concert, gone to something new, done something new. And it's because there's a, something in her heart that's not satisfied, that's not being satisfied by God. And so she has to do all this stuff and it hasn't satisfied her, but the response isn't to fall on her knees and worship. It's to fill it with more things that don't satisfy her. And the end result is not being satisfied. And what do you think that does to our bank accounts? Most of us end up in debt because we think we need something. What do we need? We need a big house, we need big education, we need a big, I don't know, boat, right? whatever it is. If you say, I need this, it's probably because you're searching for that to satisfy you instead of Jesus. Instead of the grand God of Isaiah chapter 40. What about the fifth one? Fear. What do you do when someone disagrees with you? What is it inside you that says, I, I can't have that conversation with that person. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to change some of my core convictions. I'm not going to tell them about Jesus. I'm not going to share that I actually don't like that kind of behavior because maybe they won't like me, maybe they won't accept me. I'm going to change who I am so that they accept me. Where does that come from? It comes from being more scared of them than we are of God. And what does Galatians say? We can serve one, God or man, not both. And the reason that so many of us are fearful of what other people do and say is because we fear more what they do and say than what God says for us to do. We are terrified of what someone who's going to live 90 years will say to us or do to us. And yet we live with such a a lack of of understanding of the God who created all things, who sits in eternity with grand power, who Moses couldn't even get a glimpse of. That's how glorious he is. When we place God at the center, it destroys so much of our fear. And I think the end result of all of these experiences and emotions is just a grand dissatisfaction. A moaning about the discontentness of our hearts because of all the things that have happened to us. Well, I've chased all this stuff and you know what? People are unpredictable and life is hard and my debt is crushing and I fear so many different things and I feel like I've got a lack of hope and the reason for so much of it is that we don't have God at the center of our worship. If we had God at the center of our worship, all these things start being modified. Well, what is it? What, why do I care if someone is unpredictable? Why do I, why do I care about the, the latest fad? Why do I need that? I don't. Why do I care? Am I hopeless? No. I will trust the God to renew my strength. So much of our discontentness comes from our lack of worship or of putting wrong things in God's place. Because I think it's incredibly interesting is that throughout this 20, 30 verses of just utter worship, of placing God as supreme over all things, the end of it all is a strengthening rest. 
I just love the words that come from uh, 29 onwards. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and it's understanding no one can fathom. That's who God is. And what is the result of knowing who God is? He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It's not just this promise that people who are struggling, who are discontent, who are experiencing all these emotions will trust in the Lord and have their hopes and their strengths renewed. It's that that's what happens when you worship God and place Him in the center. Even if all this stuff happens, I can be content because God is supreme. And the question that should be on the lips of most of us is not what am I worshipping? The question should be, what do I do to place God at the centre of my worship? How do I reorientate my spiritual compass to make sure that I'm not worshipping all this other stuff? I'm not worshipping money. I'm not chasing after women or men. I'm not chasing after education. I'm not chasing after fame. These things are fine. They're creation. They're just not meant to be ends in themselves. What do I do to make sure that God is at the center of everything I do. And I think the answer for us, again, lies in the Scriptures. But we're going to move from Isaiah this time. We're going to go to a small chapter in the book of Luke. We're going to hear about the story of Zacchaeus. This is a story, half the story of Zacchaeus. You can read the rest at home. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. This is one of my favorite stories in the Scripture. It's five verses long, and it's just strange. I love the the weird details that's in the, the Bible, because it just tells this story of this rich small dude. He's basically a midget, right? The crowd has come to see Jesus. They're worshiping Jesus. They want to be near Jesus. And Zacchaeus can't get there because he's just too small. He can't see through the crowd. He can't see what Jesus is doing. He can't worship him like he wants him. What does he do? He makes sure that he's going where Jesus is going. He knows Jesus is going down this path. That is where I'm going to be. I'm going to put myself in a position where Jesus will see me. I'm going to put myself in a position where Jesus is going. I'm going to stay there until things change. It is shocking how effective the everyday means of grace are for us. Because there is no revolutionary method of shifting our worship. It's being in the same things that we know help us worship. It's being in God's Word, day after day after day. And having our vision of God enlarged and enriched. It's being with God in prayer and knowing that He has our ears and that He's promised to never leave us or forsake us and that He hears our prayers and that He answers our prayers. It's being with God's community, God's people, right? Who week after 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 week shape us to have a bigger vision of God than we had the week before. And you know what the the crazy thing is? This year has been real tough for me, guys. Like, to be honest with you, just just horrible. And there has been so many weeks that I have not wanted to come to church. 
so many weeks where I haven't wanted to turn up to youth, where I've had better things to do and that better thing was lying in bed all day feeling sorry for myself or whatever. Or even the last five weeks where I've had whooping cough and um, to sound like I'm dying all the time. I just don't want to be at certain places. But I can tell you that the most encouraging thing for me has been being exactly in the places where I thought I didn't want to be. You have no idea how encouraging it has been for me being surrounded by young Christians who pray and search after the Scriptures and have their vision of God enlarged because it reminds me that's who God is. You have no idea how encouraging it is to come empty and at my wit's end and come to church and be encouraged by your voices. Because it reminds me that's who God is. That God is not my situation. God is not my problem that I'm facing. He's over all these things. And I can't see it at the moment, but I know that they do. And their singing encourages me to open up my eyes and to see God for who He is. That's why... Our vision isn't just to make all of life all about Jesus. It's not just get in the Word, get into His ear, get into His people. It's be a community of people helping people make all of life all about Jesus. Right? And that's just a fancy way of saying to be a community of people helping people worship God for who He is. Because God is supreme over all things and we were created to worship Him. And the response for us is to make all of life all about Him and to help each other make all of life all about Him. That's why we were created. That's why we exist. So that at the end of our days, we too could join with the Apostle Paul and say, for through Him and for Him and by Him are all things. For God be the glory. Amen. Friends, I'm going I'm to pray for us and the band's going to come up and we're going to worship. But I encourage you, sing loudly. Don't, don't just leave today going, yeah, oh, that was a great sermon, oh, whatever. Do a diagnosis on yourself. What are the things that I'm experiencing that come from a lack of worship of God, come from a lack of putting God at the center? Don't just have two boxes. That was a great sermon, but it's not going to impact my work or my day or my family or what I do. No, no, no. Placing God at the center changes everything. That's my challenge. Let me pray. Father, we just want to thank you for our time in the Word this morning. We thank you that even though we have small images of who you are, we've got a small picture that you smash these immature, inferior idols, that you are the grand creator who not only created all things, not only made all things, but made us in such a way that we find our greatest joy and satisfaction in worshipping you. Father, I pray that you challenge and convict our church right now to be a worshipping church, not on Sundays, not just on Mondays, not just on Tuesdays, but on every single day, every single week, every single month, for every single year, for eternity. Father, confront what we worship that isn't you and show it to be seen as nothing. If it means suffering, then bring it. If it means loss, bring it. We want you to fill us with you.